Welcome to the weekly podcast of Covenant Grace Church. Covenant Grace Church is one church meeting in multiple locations. This message was recorded at our Menifee campus. Father, we come before you um, in awe of who you are and what you've done. That you have sent your own son and that he, being very God, became a man, a real man. That he suffered and died in our place to cleanse us from sin, to make us right with you. And then three days later rose from the dead, real physical body raised. And then 40 days later ascended into heaven, is worshipped by us now. We thank you so much, Lord, for all that you've done. Make us right with you and to live through us now. And as we open your word, Lord, we pray that you would make our hearts good soil for this, Lord. Um, Your son taught a teaching where he said that the same seed can be scattered over all different types of hearts, and some are stony ground, and some where the birds pluck it out. Lord, but then there is the one with the good soil that grows up and bears much fruit. We pray, Lord, that each person here would have that kind of heart. That's a heart that you create in a person, and we pray you do that this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. So we're going to uh, take a break from Galatians, and uh, we're going to be in Ephesians 5, um, as she was reading there. And um, we're doing it for a few reasons. One is that Marcelo is going to start, Marcelo Tulipilo is going to start a, a series uh, next week on parenting. There'll be a three-week series on parenting, which will be great. He's written a book on this. He's taught on this all over the place. And so we're really excited. He's one of our very own. So it'll be fun to have him do that. Um, also, it's a good thing to do because we just talked about union with Christ last week. And so this is a great application of union with Christ here in Ephesians 5. And also because uh, Chad and Melissa got married yesterday. So Chad and Melissa Dinsmore. So that was super cool. I don't know if we have a picture of that. Yeah, we have a picture of that. Awesome uh, ceremony yesterday. And so that's, I think, four weddings that we've had this year in this church. So super exciting. Um, lots of weddings, lots of kids. It's a, it's a really good time. So um, we're going to talk about marriage. So if you want to turn to Ephesians 5, uh, starting in verse 20, 22. Marriage, guys, is about cultivation. It's about cultivating. Marriage is a lifelong covenant of friendship for mutual cultivation to the glory of God. I mean, that's why I say friendship. marriage is. It's a friendship. It's a covenant to cultivate another, one another for the glory of God. And every Christian, guys, has a person they're going to be when Christ returns. And you see that in verse 27. He talks about how the church, each one of us, will at one day be presented before God in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, holy and without blemish. We have a, a future self that's going to be perfected in Christ. And what marriage is about is that we make a promise to each other. It's a lifelong covenant where we promise to cultivate one another to become more and more like that future self. And, um, and marriage is a great place to do this kind of cultivation because marriage puts you in direct confrontation with you. A lot of times we think marriage puts us in direct confrontation with our spouse. Marriage puts you in direct confrontation with you because there's things about you that lots of other people have tried to correct, lots of people try to fix. Your parents try to fix it, your siblings try to fix it, your friends try to fix it, Lord knows your roommates try to fix it, right? Um, Your bosses try to fix it, but now you're in this lifelong relationship living with somebody that's probably not going to be quiet about this and probably not going to let it go. Everybody else kind of gives up on it, they don't really have to deal with you that much anyway. But this person that lives with you is constantly going to put before you, you. (laughs) You're constantly going to be confronted with who you are and and how you need to change. And so marriage does that. And guys, marriage is cultivating a garden. It's not inheriting a garden. When, When you make that covenant of marriage with your spouse, what you get is not a cultivated garden. You get a plot of dirt. A plot of dirt, some seeds, and get to work, right? Um... 
Marriage is a plot of soil to cultivate. We moved um, to Canyon Hills, which is just a couple minutes away, two years ago, so we could plant this church and be right here, just a couple minutes away. And we moved into a, a small track house, brand new. And you know when you go on those tours of the track houses, you know, it's all perfect and everything. And they don't tell you, like, it costs, like, $250,000 more to make it look like that, but whatever. And there's some sort of scent they put in there that's like a chemical that, it's like a, I don't know, it's like a pheromone or something that makes you want to buy things. But um, what you get when you get a track house is you get a fully landscaped front yard, right? So the front yard, it's, it's landscaped. There's sod in there, perfectly green. You know, we found out, we moved in in August. We found out that they were watering it twice a day in the drought, you know? So it's getting watered 14 times a week, you know? It looks awesome. Plants are in, flowers are in, full-size tree. Sprinklers work flawlessly. I've never had sprinklers that work flawlessly. It's awesome, ready to go, ready to enjoy. What's in the backyard? Dirt. And in Canyon Hills, it's like dirt, dirt. I mean, this isn't something that grows anything but tumbleweeds. And they say, okay, cultivate it. And guys, that's what you get when you get married. You get a patch of soil and some seeds and told, cultivate that. Do something with that. Grow that. And the problem is, guys, that's not what we're expecting. We expect sod and full-grown fruit trees and flowers and perfectly timed sprinklers so we don't have to do much to maintain it. That's what we expect of marriage. Isn't that what you expected? You expected that you'd have, you know, right off the bat, deep, fulfilling communication and unified growing finances and really in-sync time management and great sex life and all this stuff. Like, it's this garden that's all set to go, ready to enjoy. And that's kind of how the culture pictures it, right? That this honeymoon period is a time of this beautiful garden that you, you got when you got married. And then over time, that thing's just going to, like, wither and die. So enjoy it while you can. It's the best it'll ever be in the beginning. That's the picture, really, I think, that the culture gives us, guys. But you've got a plot of soil to cultivate. And it will take decades for you to enjoy some of those things. And it's good. It's a good thing. Cultivating is a good thing. I think a lot of times we back away from that kind of work. It's a good thing. Um, none of those things came pre-planted. Cultivation takes work. Cultivation takes time. And so when we say to ourselves, ah, why is this marriage so hard? Maybe I married the wrong person. You know, why aren't things changing faster? The thing is we need to switch our mindset and go, this is about cultivation. Because if you ask the question from a cultivation standpoint and you go, you know, why does cultivation take so much time and why is it so hard? You're like, oh, yeah, it's supposed to be, right? It's a healthier thing to think of it in a way of cultivation. And, guys, the good news is, is the honeymoon period is not the best part of marriage in a marriage that's well cultivated. Um, it's only the beginning of planting. Tasha and I have been married uh, for 20 years now, and this is the best it's ever been in all areas, you know? And marriages go through ups and downs and times and stuff like that, but there's been overall, uh, uh, it's been better because it's cultivated and we love it. You know, we love it because we're more unified, we're more one than we were in the beginning. It's about cultivation. And so how do we cultivate our marriage? Well, I can give you a bunch of answers, and we can go to a bunch of different passages, but we're going to be in Ephesians 5, and we're going to look at the instructions that husbands and wives have been given here. And they're called um, by a lot of people when we talk about them. We talk about the roles in marriage. Have you guys heard that before? These are marriage roles. So we're kind of switching the metaphor from uh, agriculture or farming to acting, right? You know, every, every play has actors. Every actor has a role. And in here, we see that God has given us roles to play out in marriage. And, and that's actually a good way of talking about it, because it gets at what marriage is really about. In ancient culture, marriage was about your family of origin having increased security and status, right? So you would, your parents would marry you off to somebody that would get the family more status and security. That's ancient culture. Modern culture, we go for um, just you know, self-fulfillment and happiness, right? Which is very hard to define very hard to get, <laughs> but that's what we go for. The Bible said that marriage is about something altogether different. It says that marriage is about gospel reenactment. 
Isn't that cool? It's about gospel reenactment. This passage talks about, you know, a wife being the role of the church and a husband being the role of Christ. It's about gospel reenactment. Marriage is about a play. It's a public drama. And, um, and each role is one that's taken from the gospel. And so the, the wife takes the role of the church, and, and the husband takes the role of Christ. And as they act out those roles, they receive power from their script. They receive power from the gospel. And so we're going to look at those roles this morning, and we're going to see how it transforms us. First, take a look at the uh, wives. It says, Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. And if you drop down to verse 33, it says, And let the wife see that she respects her husband. Now, I am well aware, okay? I am well aware that this passage grates against the raw nerve endings of our culture, okay? It even will grate against you, you know, because we're all a part of that culture, right? We all kind of inhale it. We all kind of are a part of our own culture. And so when we hear these things, you know, there's this tendency to kind of bristle against it, right? And there have been lots of misuses of this passage, right? And there have been lots of abuses of this passage. But what I'm not going to do for you guys this morning is I'm not going to explain them away. I'm not going to say, oh, yeah, I says submit, but it doesn't mean submit at all. You know, I'm not going to explain it away because, guys, the Bible is, is, is not to be molded into our image, right? We don't take it, we mold it into, oh, you know, it looked like something I didn't like, but then, you know, when he talked about it at the end, I, I, I thought it is something I like. That's not the goal, <laughs> to mold it into our image. The Bible is for God to mold us into his image, right? And, but I do believe that there's some severe misunderstandings in this passage that need to be cleared up. The first one's the word submission. Guys, does the word submission have a positive or negative connotation in our culture? Okay, uniformly negative. Nobody's like, positive. Okay, they're like, okay, what culture are you from? Uh, <laughs> so um, it's got a negative one, right? And, and even we can feel that way. Um, where is the word submission used in our culture? Slavery, okay. Slavery would be a good one. Where else? Yeah, ultimate wrestling, Right? It's used in slavery and wrestling. Let me ask you this. In wrestling, is submission something somebody voluntarily does themselves, or it's something they're forced into? Forced into, right? So this word submission has this sense of like somebody's going to submit to you, right? They're going to pin you. They're going to submit you. Same with slavery. You're going to be submitted. Um, This, guys, is not a command, though, to husbands. This is a command to wives. Notice that. It says wives Submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. Notice that the command is not to husbands. The command is not, husbands, submit your wives. I think a lot of times guys will read this and be like, I need to take control of this home, you know? Like, and he kind of, you know, have this sense of like, I'm going to bring her in line, right? This is not a command to you. (laughs) This is a command to the wife. It doesn't say, husbands, submit your wives. It says, wives, submit to your own husbands. Nowhere in the Bible are husbands told to bring their wives into submission. This word, this Greek word translated submission here is to rank yourself under. So it's to see a leader and go, I'm going to rank myself under that person. I'm going to follow that person. I'm going to joyfully let that person lead me. A wife's submission is something she voluntarily gives to her husband as she affirms his spiritual leadership. It's not something a husband demands, okay? Um, and, and look at the reason Paul gives for this command. He says in verse 23, For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Paul encourages um, wives here to submit to their husbands by telling them that their husband is their head, is the head of the family. Um, what does it mean to be the head of the wife? It's a role of spiritual leadership. It, it's a role that God, guys, will hold us husbands accountable for. Yeah, if you look in, and this is an important thing, in Genesis 3, when Adam and Eve sinned, 
And God comes, and they're kind of scattering. They're hiding themselves. And he says, where are you? That you is singular. And we know who he's talking to because Adam answers, <laughs> right? He says, where are you? And he calls out Adam. So they both sinned, but Adam is the one that gets called out. He is the one that's held responsible for how his family's going. And in that passage, it said that, you know, that Eve gave the apple to her husband who was with her at the time, you know, watching her communicate to this, you know, uh, snake, Satan being, right? Um, husbands, you, we, we will answer to the Lord for how we lead our families. We will answer. And to some of you, I'm praying that God is even today saying, where are you? <laughs> that this morning he'd be calling out and you'd hear him saying, where are you, husband? The husband, and this is a really cool teaching, and, and I'm, uh, I'm really excited about it, because when a guy sees the weight of responsibility that he has before the Lord to spiritually lead his family, it transforms him. It's a really cool thing to watch. Over and over again, I've seen it where, you know, he just thinks he's kind of along for the ride, or, you know, he's got 50% of the responsibility, and then when he sees he's responsible before the Lord for his family, it transforms him. I'll give you an example. I had a, uh, my work truck. I'm a horse vet. My work truck had it for 11 years, driving down. I finally had to replace it. And so I uh, went down to San Diego, found another truck. I've got this thing that goes in. It's called a vet pack, and it's got all my equipment and stuff. It weighs like 1,200 pounds. So you have to get a big truck, long bed, the whole thing, right? Go down to San Diego, get this truck. It's perfect for this. I'm driving it home, and I'm like, this is not perfect. It's like bumping. Like crazy. It's F-350, and I'm going down the freeway, and I'm like, I don't know if I can do 11 years like this. You know, like, I think I might have neurologic problems, you know, and, and, it, and it's stressing me out. I'm like, okay, this is probably going to be fine, you know, let's see what it's like when I get the vet pack in. You know, when we lowered with the winch, we lowered that vet pack into my truck, you know, it dropped a few inches. It drives so smoothly. Husbands are like that, too. <laughs> Husbands are like that, too. When they sense the weight of responsibility that they have before God for their family, they drive so much smoother. You know, they drive so much carefuler. They're, they're, they, they, they listen to God's word more clearly. Um, and so that's what I'm praying for some of you, that you would get a sense for that, and that weight would drop in you, and it would be a good thing for you. You'd be like, I was made to do this. I was made to lead my family. And guys, husbands being the head of the wife and of the family does not mean that he's superior in some way. In, in 1 Corinthians 11.3, Paul talks about the husband being the head of the wife. But he also says that God the Father is the head of Christ right, in that passage. And so um, it is in no way demeaning for a woman to have her husband be the head of her family any more than it would be demeaning to Christ to have the father be the head, right? They're equally God, three persons and one God, and, um, but with different roles. You know, Jesus is the one that died for your sins, not the father. The father sent him. Uh, the father chose you in eternity past. He sends the son to die for your sins. He sends the spirit to come and make you alive to the gospel. Each person in the Trinity has a different role. Um, and, and the Father is the head of Christ in that whole situation, but that doesn't devalue him. And so you're not devalued by having another person be the, the head over you as your spirit, of, of your home, the spiritual leader. So submission is a wife as her, uh, submitting to her husband who is equal in value and worth to her voluntarily. It, it's, it's a, submission is about a heart and words and actions that say, I'm thankful to God that he gave you as my spiritual leader, and I want you to be the best leader you can be. You say, well, are there limits to this? Yes, there are limits to this. You, you can't allow your husband to, to uh, make you sin in any way. You refuse, which is going to make you sin in any way. You definitely cannot allow your husband to physically abuse you. I think we need to mention that regularly in the church. That's a crime. 
Um, we will help you get out of that situation, but the police will be involved. You know, there's certain, they are the ministers of justice, it says in Romans. And so there is a role for them to take care of it. That's a crime. They can't, he can't abuse you. We will help you, though, to find a place to live and to take care of you and be there for you with that. So if that is happening, you let us know. Let's just say your husband is just not a very good one. Okay, well, like, that's me too, right? Like, lots of bad husbands here, you know? I'm one of them. Um, if, if, if he's just sinning in some way, you can and should correct him. I think that sometimes we get this sense that, like, she's supposed to stay quiet, never say anything about, about her husband's sin. You're his helper. <laughs> you should help him. That doesn't mean you're nagging him or doing things like that, but to come to him in a respectful way and tell him, this is, some, this is not good. You know, this is, this is against God's word. Like, this is something that needs to change. You're his helper. Remember where that comes from? That comes from Genesis 2.15. And when we see God's design, original design for marriage, if you want to turn there, you can. It says in Genesis 2.15, The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day you eat it, you shall surely die. Then the Lord said to them, said, Then the Lord said, it is not good that man should be alone. I will make a helper for him. And so you see why Eve was made, that first woman was made for that first man, was to be his friend. Isn't that cool? The, the, the number one reason for marriage is he shouldn't be alone. Isn't that awesome? It's about companionship. It's about friendship. In the Song of Solomon, the, the bride says, this is my beloved, this is my friend. It's about friendship. It's also about being a helper. In the Old Testament, guys, helper didn't imply inferiority. And sometimes it's like, well, why is the wife the helper and not the husband? Well, if it was that way, then we'd be like, why is the husband the helper? Not the, you know, like, either way, we're going to have a problem, right? Um, the word helper in the Old Testament doesn't re- imply weakness or inferiority. The, the Hebrew term for helper is most often used of who in the Old Testament? God. You know, the Lord is my helper, over and over again. It's, it's the most common usage of that, that Hebrew word helper is for God himself, guys. And the Lord is our helper because he can do things we can't do. He, it's, it's out of strength. A helper, biblically, is not a menial assistant, but someone that possesses abilities and insights you don't have. And, and a helper implies that we need help. We do need help. <laughs> we need lots of help, right? And, and so we have a helper to help us. And, and in, in Genesis 2.18, it says a helper fit for us. A helper that would come with specific abilities and insights that we need. Things we need to hear. I think guys, when they take this whole thing of Ephesians 5, sometimes they, they think, well, I'm just going to leave this family. I'm not going to listen to my wife and stuff like that. And it's like, um, you're playing the part of Christ, but you are not Christ. <laughs> You do not have all the wisdom that you need. Your wife is a spirit, if she's a believer, she's a spirit and dwelt person that knows the Lord and is somebody that you should listen to. And, and after affirming, um, and, and the thing as being a helper is to affirm his leadership and help him be the best possible leader he can be. That should be the role. Submitting to him in a way that says, I want you to be a leader, I want you to be the best one you can. And so some examples, like if, if he's struggling to lead in family devotions, I think that in every family, it's not like there's no rule about this, but it's a good idea at the dinner table or at some time in the evening to, or in the morning, whenever, to open God's word and, and, and teach the family. If he's struggling with that, get him something brief to read and just hand it to him. Say, hey, could you read this? And just see where it develops from there. It's a lot better than complaining about it, right? You know, saying, I want you to lead, here's a tool. And we've got a church library, I don't think it's there today, but we normally have it back there, and it's got lots of books that would be good for leading in family devotions. And for any of you guys that want to grow in that, there are guys in this church that are super passionate about that, let me know, I'll plug you in with them. Maybe it's something we'll do at men's breakfast at some point. 
Um, if he's struggling to take an active role in leadership and decision-making, you know, try this. Say to him, you know, I'd really like to hear what, what you think we should do with this. Why don't you go pray for wisdom from God? I really want to hear what you, what you hear from him. I really want to hear where you, where you come from on that. Um, or you could say, hey, why don't you talk to some other men in the church and seek some counsel there and let me know what you're thinking. It's to put it in his court and say, I eagerly want you to, to lead in this family. And you don't have to cultivate your husband alone. The church is a family. And in the family, there's different people on different stages of development in their husbanding and wifing. And, uh, and so encourage him to connect. Encourage him to come to, like, men's breakfast. And one of the things with this church that we wanted from the beginning, I remember we were talking to Josh and David about this real early on, is we wanted this to be the kind of church that men wanted to come to. You know, the church can be a very feminine environment, and we do want women to come. But we wanted husbands, particularly, and, and for men to want to be here, to feel like this is something that they need to be a part of, that they're not being dragged by their wife to church, but that they would even go when she can't go, and they want to be in church. Like, that's what we wanted. And that's happened. It's become a hive of men's discipleship. We love cultivating men, cultivating husbands. Um, one of the ways you can do that is eat a meal with another guy sometime this week, somebody else in this church, and learn from them. Um, couples, connect with each other, confess your sin, confess the problems you're having, get help. Because one of the things that happens in the church is everybody tries to pretend they're fine, which I don't know why that is, because we believe in the gospel, right, that we're not fine. You know, you look on your cards there, your invite cards, it says, like, we're more sinful and flawed than we ever did believe. Like, we're saying that, like, that's our statement about ourselves. And then when we get together, we're like, oh, no, not flawed. You know, don't want to say anything. And the, the bummer about it is it makes you even more vulnerable than if you weren't in church because you're not saying anything. And what happens in the church a lot of times, you're like, hey, what, where are the Joneses at? Oh, the Joneses are getting divorced. And it's like, I didn't know there was a problem. People are quiet until their house is burning down, you know? And then it's, it's so late in the game at that point. You know, connect with each other. Don't be ashamed that you're having problems. There's a ton of problems in here. A ton of problems in here. And it'd be great for you to pray and get coaching. You don't have to do this alone. Amen? All right, take advantage of that. Husbands, let's look at husbands, verse 25. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Husbands, you cultivate your wife through sacrificial servant leadership, right? Verse 25 says, as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Servant leadership is a weird thing in our culture. We don't really have a category for this. Because in our culture, if you're the leader, you don't serve, you are served. And if you're a servant, you don't lead, you get led, right? Like, that's kind of the definition in our culture. But in Jesus, we see servant leader in a really unique way. Um, he is a servant leader. If you think about in John 13, you know, at the Last Supper, and they come in there for, the, for Passover. They didn't know the Last Supper. He did. They're going to have Last Supper. They come in. Their feet are dirty. There's nobody to wash the feet. It was like the menial slave's job, menial servant's job to do. Nobody wants to do it. Everybody's too proud to do it. Everybody wants to be the best. And so Jesus does it, right? And he washes their feet and everything. And afterwards, it says, when he had washed their feet, verse 12 of John 13, when he had washed their feet and put on his outer garment and resumed his place, he said, do you understand what I've done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you're right, for so I am. If I then, being teacher and Lord, have washed your feet, you ought to wash one another's feet. For I've given you an example that you should also do, just as I've done to you. It's amazing, guys, that Jesus manages to somehow be servant and leader at the same time. I mean, that's our example, right? It's our example of leadership. In that room, there's no doubt who the servant was. This guy washing feet. But nobody was like, I guess Peter's in charge now. Like, nobody did that, right? They all know that he's still leading. He's leading by his serving. It's awesome. Our leadership isn't, guys, husbands, our leadership is not to get our own way. 
And that's such a dumb view of this thing, that somehow then we pick the color of the car, and we pick where we're going for vacation, all this stuff. It's like, he didn't give you leadership for things like that. He gave you leadership to, not so you could have your own way, so God could have his way in the family. You're called to be the pastor of this family, right? You're called to be the shepherd of this family. Look at verse 25. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for that, right, purpose. He might sanctify her having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church in, to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. Guys, your goal as a husband is that God would use you to cultivate your wife to become more and more like that person we talked about in verse 27, that person we will be when Christ returns. You're there to cultivate her, and you cultivate her by the word. Bring the word of God into your home. And I think some of us, especially young husbands, have this idea when we get a hold of this verse, we think, like, I'm going to have devotions you know, and it's like, I'm going to have hour-long devotions, you know, I'm going to, we're going to do the book of Leviticus or something like that, it's like, okay, the book of Leviticus is great, by the way, I love the book of Leviticus, but, um, but it's, it, it, pick something lighter, um, maybe pick a psalm or something like that, start off easy, um, be cognizant of your kids and what their attention span and ability is, it would be better that it's a good 25 seconds than it's a painful 25 minutes, Okay, and you could do this every single day, and you could build up as their tolerance builds up and as your ability builds up, right? Um, your husbands, you're called to cultivate your wife. Where do I see cultivation? Look at verse 28. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. No one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ does the church. That's great cultivation language, right? Nourishes and cherishes, right? These are cultivation terms. That term nourish. Um, certainly implies physically nourishing her, right? Um, at the very least, it, 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 it's physically nourishing her. You got to feed that girl, right? You got a wife, you got to feed that girl. You got to provide that girl a nest, right? These are some things that you're called to do. That doesn't mean that a wife can't work outside the home, but it does mean that her work is in some way optional, yours is not, okay? In some way, her work is optional, yours is not. Husbands, you should work more than her, and if for some reason the work that she's doing is something that she can't do anymore, emotionally, physically, whatever it is, um, or if it, somebody needs to get a second job, you're the guy that gets the second job, right? You're the guy that gets the second job because you're called to nourish her. And she can come alongside you and help with work, but husbands can't kick back and rely on their wives to do this. Nourish her, right? But it doesn't just mean physically either. This nourish and cherish is also emotional, right? That Greek there for cherish means to warm, it's used in First, uh, First Thessalonians. Paul uses it to talk about how he cared for them as little infants, you know, to so warm them, to so care for them. Husbands are called to affirm and empower their wives in such a way that they'll flourish. You know, what does she need, really need to, to have to flourish and to be what God's called her to be? It's cultivation talk, right? You guys want to see a very well-cultivated woman? Um, Proverbs 31. And I think Proverbs 31 is often given... And it, and, it, and it can be given uh, to wives as something to emulate, and I think that's good. But I think I'd like to look at it in a different way this morning. I'd like to look at this as, this is a woman that's been cultivated by her husband. She's been cultivated. Take a look at this, Proverbs 31.10. An excellent wife who can find. She is far more precious than jewels. The heart of her husband trusts in her, and he will have no lack of gain. She does him good, not harm, all the days of her life. She seeks wool and flax and works with willing hands. She's like ships of the merchant. She brings her food from afar. She rises while it is yet night and provides food for her household and portions for her maidens. She considers a field and buys it. With the fruit of her hands, she plants a vineyard. She dresses herself with strength and makes her arms strong. 
She perceives that her merchandise is profitable. Her lamp does not go out at night. She puts her hand to the distaff, and her hand holds the spindle. She opens her hand to the poor and reaches out her hands to the needy. She's not afraid of snow for her household, for all her household are clothed in scarlet. She makes bed coverings for herself. Her clothing is fine linen and purple. Her husband is known in the gates, and he sits among the elders of the land. She makes linen garments and sells them. She delivers sashes to the merchants. Strength and dignity are her clothing, and she laughs at the time to come. She opens her mouth with wisdom, and the teaching of kindness is on her tongue. She looks well to the ways of her household and does not eat the bread of idleness. Her children rise up and call her blessed. Her husband also. He praises her. Many women have done excellently, but you surpass them all. Charm is deceitful and beauty is vain, but a woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. Give her the fruit of her hands. Let her work praise her in the gates. I just love seeing this cultivated wife. I mean, these people probably are not newly married. This is probably something that was uh, built up over time. Certainly they have children, plural. But um, look at her. She's trustworthy. It says in verse uh, 11 and 12 that the heart of her husband trusts in her. And he'll have no lack of gain. She does him good and not harm all the days of her life. She's trustworthy. She's industrious. Maybe too industrious. Um, if you look at verse 15 and 18, she rises while it's still night, and then her lamp doesn't go out at night. So, like, I don't know when she's sleeping, a little insomnia. I don't know. A little too industrious maybe, but she's industrious. Um, she's smart. I love this because this was written 2000 B.C., guys. This is a very high, accurate view of women here. Um, but if you look at verse 16, she considers a field and buys it. 2000 BC, she's out there going, okay, this would be a good field for a vineyard. How much you want for it? Uh, would you take this much? You know, like she considers a field and buys it. It says in 18, she perceives her merchandise is profitable. She's smart. She's generous. You look at verse 20. She opens her hands to the poor and reaches out her hands to the needy. She's managing the family's mercy ministry, you know, and that takes wisdom, right? Because it takes wisdom to know where to put those. A lot of people need help. Where do I put this? She has wisdom in that. She's courageous. Look at verse um, 21 and 25. It says, she's not afraid of the snow for her family. And I love verse 25. She laughs at the time to come. I don't laugh at the time to come. You know me about this. I, I admire this so much. I admire this so much in a woman that has this kind of character that she laughs at the time to come. Because I, I deal with anxiety all the time. I don't know what it would be like to laugh at the time to come. It's, it, it sounds awesome, you know. My wife is like this. Tasha's like this. She's, you know, this is our, starting into our slow time at work, and, you know, the money's going to kind of drain off because I'm self-employed, right? So then, like, the winter, like, for whatever reason, nothing's happening with horse medicine at that time, and it won't come back until, like, April. So I'm, like, getting ready for it. There's this sadness building. You guys saw on Facebook I post uh, Jehovah Jireh, right? I'm, like, I'm, like, talking myself up, like, this is going to be okay. Lord's going to provide, Right? I admire this. Tasha's not like that. She laughs at the time to come. Not out loud. You could. She's wise. Look at verse 26. She opens her mouth with wisdom and the teaching of kindness is on her tongue. Once again, written 3,000 years ago, 2000 BC. This woman has street cred to minister to other people because of her life. Isn't that awesome? And she's used that wisdom to cultivate her husband. Look at verse 23. It says, her husband is known in the gates when he sits among the elders of the land. That she's responsible for this. Don't forget, this is a list of her accomplishments. And in it is, her husband is in the gates with the elders um, leading, right? That she has her husband in a place of influence in the community because she's cultivated that kind of husband. Isn't that amazing? That's in the list of her accomplishments is that she's cultivated that kind of husband. Um, and and she's, uh, her husband is, has cultivated her too. 
It's mutual cultivation, right? She's cultivated that kind of husband, but he's cultivated her too. Where do I see the husband cultivating this woman? I think we miss the husband in this thing, right? You've probably heard this taught a bunch of times, but the husband's here too. We need to mention him. He's cultivating her as she's cultivating him. Where do I see that? He trusts her in verse 11. The heart of her husband trusts in her. Nothing drives me a whole lot more crazy than micromanaging husbands. You know, I mean, I know a guy that, you know, he uh, won't let his wife go do the shopping because he didn't trust her. You know, so he goes and he does all the grocery shopping. He told me that's the reason. He's like, oh, she'll just buy whatever. And I'm like, ah, you know, how is she supposed to, you know, really develop in the woman that God has for her if you don't even trust her to buy groceries? Like, what's wrong with you? There was another guy we were counseling, and Tasha and I were sitting there and we're talking, and, and he's like, he says this to his wife. He goes, I know you leave the AC on when you pick up the kids. And I was like, what? And he's all, when he's, she's waiting for the kids at the school, he leaves the AC, she leaves the AC on, leaves the car running. That wastes a lot of gas. And I'm like, we live on the surface of the sun here. <laughs> like, do you want to have a wife and kids? Let her run the AC. Like, it's bizarre, right? Like, she, this woman can't win, right? Drives me crazy, these stingy, controlling, micromanaging husbands. He trusts in her. She grows from that trust. He empowers her. You know, we see that in verse 16. She's purchasing land. In verse 20, she's generous to the poor. These are things she does. He doesn't tell her, oh, well, that person, this person. No, she's taking it. And he affirms her. I love that in verse 28. It says, her children rise up and call her blessed, and her husband praises her also. And he says this, many women have done excellently, but you surpass them all. He makes it very clear to her that she is the best right? She's the best, you know? Over and over again, he tells her that. Um, and you notice the kids rise up and praise her? Why do they do that? They learn that from their dad. They learn to rise up and praise her from their, from her, from their dad, from her husband. Um, and, and he wants to be sure that she, um, she knows she's the best, and he also wants to make sure that she knows that she can use and utilize and enjoy all the benefits of what she's built, I love that. It says in verse 31, give her the fruit of her hands. And then it says, and let her works praise her in the gates. So remember, the gates are that place of, of influence in the city. You know, walled city, you know, the gates. Um, it says, let her be praised in the gates. How's she getting praised in the gates? Who's in the gates? Her husband's in the gates. He's leading a chorus and praising his wife in the community as well. He's, he's cultivated this woman. Um, go back to Ephesians 5. I love the motivation here for nourishing and cherishing. Verse 28 says, In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. No one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it. The, so we're called to care for and cultivate our wife because she is us. It's a different way of thinking about your wife, right? It's not like this separate person. This person is me. Marriage, guys, was designed by God for the deepest possible unity and the deepest possible friendship. Remember in Genesis 2, like that was the reason for creating marriage, is so that the man would not be alone. And then later it says that they would become one flesh. You know, there's a, a unity that God has in marriage, a spiritual unity. It's a spiritual unity, it's a legal unity where you share all of your stuff, your, your, your profits and your losses, your strengths and your weaknesses, your, your sorrows and your, your joys. You share everything, you have a legal union. You also have a union of life as you learn to live it out. Um, this friendship, guys, in marriage, as it develops, Martin Luther said it's like the greatest gift on earth, right? It's the greatest gift on earth to have a friend um, as a spouse and to have that be your best friend. And, and you guys need to guard it. You guard that thing. You guard it vigorously. You don't let anybody get in the way of that friendship. You don't let anybody stand in the way of that. And that could be, that could even come down to family members. It could come down to your own kids. 
Guys, your relationship as husband and wife is far more important than your relationship with your kids. We know that because that is the one flesh covenant here in Genesis 2, right? And you know what? They're going to leave you. They're going to leave you cold, okay? It's going to happen, you know? And, and what you want is you want to guard that relationship so the two of you can be 90 years old, completely toothless, in rocking chairs, watching your great grandkids. Yeah, isn't that a great vision? That's a great vision of marriage. It's not that Hollywood, like, first couple years of marriage thing. It's the 90-year-old in the rocking chair with no teeth, right? And we need to water this, guys. We need to water. We're cultivating. We need to water it. You guys have heard the saying, the grass is always greener where? Grass is always greener where you water it, right? Grass is always greener where you water it. You guys were right, by the way. Um, the grass is always greener where you water it. You know, you think about these, you know, especially men. When they get older. There's kind of the seven-year-age thing, but then there's when the kids go out of the house. And there's guys, you know, my age and older. And they decide, you know what, I'm just going to move on. I'm going to find somebody else. I'm going to find somebody younger, right? Um, and, and they back away from this idea of cultivating. You want to cultivate it. They you know, they, somebody at work or whatever, and it's like, oh, she's, you know, she responds to me so much better, and she seems to respect me so much more. Dude, you're watering it. That's why. Like, you're texting that woman all the time. You're Facebook messaging that woman all the time. Of course she's flirting back. You're watering it. Go water your field. Go water your marriage. Don't water there. And what would that entail? That would th- entail things like, you guys know this, set a date night, set date afternoons, Set date trips to Home Depot. You know, like, do whatever you got to do. Like, Tasha and I will do, like, a date to the grocery store. We'll go on walks. We'll go shopping. We'll discuss what we're reading. Like, this is your friend. This is your beloved. This is your friend. Develop that friendship. Um, does that union sound like anything we talked about last week? You know, it's a spiritual union. It's a legal union. It's a life union, right? It sounds like union with Christ. And that's what Paul brings out here. Look at verse 28. And I'll close with this. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. No one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it. Now listen to this. Just as Christ does the church, because we're members of his body. We talked about this last week, that like by the Holy Spirit, we're connected to Christ such that he views us as his own self. That we're connected with him such that we get treated legally as if we have done all the things Christ has done. Because he got treated as if he did all the things we did on the cross. And and we become members of his body. And then listen to this. Then he quotes Genesis 2, but he does a weird thing with it. He goes, therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. And he says, this is a profound mystery. And you're like, yeah, that is a profound mystery. Marriage and husband and wife and all this. And he goes, no, 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 no. He says, I'm talking about Christ and the church. You might say, wow, like, So what he's really talking about, he's talking about this mysterious union you have with Jesus. So he's saying that Genesis 2, in some way, is primarily about your union with Christ, not about marriage. That's a weird one. That's surprising, right? And and that just goes to show, guys, that God created marriage as a symbol to be Christ in the church, but he thought of Christ in the church first. Okay, So in his mind, first he thinks of this relationship. He's going to save a people. He's going to elect a people before the foundation of the earth. He's going to send the Spirit to be, make those people come spiritual lives. He's going to sell, send his son to die for those people. He's going to ransom those people. And then he thought, how can I best illustrate this? And he came up with the idea of marriage. Because a lot of times we think that God's like the kind of poet that we would be, where we want to illustrate something and we think throughout the world and what already exists, and we grab something. Oh, yeah, it's kind of like pizza or whatever. You know, that, that kind of thing if you're a bad poet. Um, but what it's saying here is that God thought of marriage, God thought of Christ in the church first, 
and thought of marriage later. And I think he did that with sheep and all these other things too. He's the kind of poet that, didn't, that was able to create all the things he was going to use as examples. And guys, the, this union of Christ and the church, um, marriage is his favorite symbol for it. This is his favorite symbol for our union with Christ and the church, marriage. Because you guys ever wondered why God guards marriage and sex so fiercely? You hear people in our secular culture say, why, is Bible, why are Christians so hung up about sex? And why are Christians so hung up about divorce? And then you could ask, well, why is the Bible so hung up about sex and divorce? And you could ask, why is God so hung up about sex and divorce? And the reason is, is that this is a symbol. This is his favorite symbol of his most precious thing that he has, the union of his son with his people. And so he guards it ferociously. And the cool thing is, is that he will help you ferociously. He will help you ferociously, and he's going to do it through your union with Christ. That's the way he's going to help you. He's going to help you, like we talked about, with that secret power, the fact that you're connected with Christ such that Christ's life can flow into you. The Holy Spirit connects you to Jesus in such a way, like an umbilical cord, that he gives you Christ's life flowing through you. That's how he's going to change your marriage. And so when, you're, when you, you love your spouse, you're going to love your spouse as you love yourself because Jesus loves you as his self. You know, when you serve your spouse, even when they don't deserve it, you're going to do that because Jesus is worthy, not because they're worthy. Because Jesus always serves you as if you're a part of his body. When you forgive your spouse, you're going to do it because the Lord forgave you. You do it as the Lord forgave you. Your marriage union is empowered and sweetened by your union with Christ. And say, if you weren't here last week, like, listen to that message. We got it online and stuff about union with Christ because that is the power to change your marriage. You've been listening to the weekly podcast of the Menifee Campus of Covenant Grace Church. If you'd like to know more about Covenant Grace Church, visit us online at covgrace.org.